Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. All right, good morning, Mike. Good morning. Forgive my voice. Um, yeah, well, it's going to be a little little iffy this morning, but we'll keep going. Uh, yes. Hope you are well. Press gonna, on. I'm that's fine. right. That's right, for the, for the sake of our listener. <laughs> we're we're going to um, continue our mini-series, we'll call it, we started, where we're we're going through books that uh, you've, you've enjoyed to be good books, but we re- recognize people may not read them. And these are these are helpful books that, at least you have found them helpful and could see them as, as potentially helpful for others. So, uh, today we're talking about um, George Lakoff's "Don't Think of an Elephant." <laughs> um, I think the subtitle there is uh, "What fr- Frame?" Oh, I'm sorry. Know your know, know your values, values and, and frame, frame the, the debate. debate. Yeah, <clears throat> I believe so. it's Lakoff, by the way. We don't want to we don't want to annoy George. You're okay. early in the morning. <laughs> there you go. Lake off. <laughs> uh, it's George Lakoff. Um, so yeah, why don't you tell us uh, tell yeah. us a little bit about the book and wh- why you think it's meaningful? Good. Well, the book is almost twenty years old, and uh, Lakoff is at uh, I believe is a uh, Cal Berkeley uh, sociologist linguist, what have you. But the thrust of it is uh, think of the title. Don't think of an elephant. So what are you imagining right now? Of course, an yes. elephant. So. His book was written, uh, I mean, it seems like a long time ago, but his point was to Democrats, you're losing the battle for your ideas because you think that uh, people understand facts and if they just understood the facts, uh, they'd be free. Facts alone will free us and we'll, and we'll, people will follow the facts. And in fact, they, people think in frames and that means there's an image that comes to mind. And so when you don't reframe the debate and you argue inside their frame, you're going to lose. So that's the thrust of the book. It's worth reading for this reason. Um, You know, Lewis, C.S. Lewis said it well, all truth is won by metaphor, which is just another word for a frame or a picture. And uh, Socrates said the soul never thinks without a picture. So, for example, if I say to you, Hesed, the average person would draw a blank. No picture comes to mind. If I say to you the word cat, you don't actually imagine C-A-T, the image of a cat comes to mind. That's called a frame. Hesed is a Hebrew word meaning loving kindness, but if you didn't know Hebrew, then you wouldn't know, no picture would come to mind. And so facts alone don't move us. The frames, they take the frame and they, a frame takes the facts and dumps it in. Quick example, if you go to the mother country, England, and you say, uh, is there a football game on tonight? What do they imagine? (laughs) People kicking the ball around. That's right. So see, frames beat facts to the punch. That's the point, essentially, of his book. Now, the reason I mentioned the... uh, uh, the, the Democratic 
the Democrats, is uh, they hired him. I heard paid him up to a million dollars to coach a generation of Democrats on how to frame an issue. Because he said, beginning with William Buckley in the 50s, that uh, Republicans and conservatives have done a far better job. Progressives have not done a particularly good job at framing the debate. And so uh, they hired him and he coached a generation of people to learn how to frame a debate. Wow. So uh, what's the, what, what's the, maybe the content of his book look like? How's, how's he spend so many pages telling us about this? Well, there's a good reason. We call these books you're probably never going to read, especially most of my male friends who hardly read much of anything anyway. And this guy can take a dig because I'm, I'm a male. And we still believe in male, female. Um, the point is, it's a very short book. I think the average person could sit down and read it in less, less than an hour. Say oh, wow. 30, 30, 40 minutes. It's real quick. And furthermore, the second half of the book, you don't have to worry about because he's going to get into tactics for uh, hmm. progressives. Set that aside. The, the best part is the first part where he talks about that uh, progressives, he's saying, but I would actually say uh, Western Christians fit this, have been under the illusion that if only people understood the facts, we'd be fine. Wrong. The facts alone will not set us free. People make the decisions in life based on their value system, and that value system is based on the frames that invoke those values. And so the first part gets into the cognitive science behind it, what cognitive science is called the cognitive unconscious, which we know today is about 95% of our thinking is in uh, frames that we don't consciously access. We know them by their consequences. So with the way we reason and what counts as common sense really isn't common sense. It's operating inside the frame. Here's two quick ways to think about that. First of all, you ever heard the phrase, Think outside the box. I have. I have. Well, the point is you don't. You can't think outside the box. The word hesed, for the average person, is outside their frame. A frame is a box. You can't think outside the box. That's one of those uh, stupid phrases that consultants came up with. <laughs> what you can do is create a new box, hmm. a new frame. And then second... When they say we know them by their consequences, quick example I use often in when I do these seminars is I'll point to someone and say, uh, hey, did you drive here? Yes, I drove here. So where's your car right now? It's in the parking lot. You don't know that for a fact. You imagine your car is there. Now let's go outside and you find out your car is gone. Mm. So we learn our frames by their consequences you might get your latest printout from your financial advisor and you go what because you haven't been paying attention to the stock market mm -hmm. so frames that's and it's very helpful because it's a very simple book he said so if you actually want to change the world you've got to reframe because if you argue against the other side and you use their language, you're, you're reinforcing their frame. 
And so, you know, actually Jesus did this all the time. You've heard it said, but I say to you, and he reframed, he reframed the uh, debate of the Pharisees and Sadducees that came to him about these debates on divorce. And he reframed the whole thing. He goes, well, in the beginning, this wasn't the case. You err because you've forgotten these things. And he just reframed it. So that's the, the, the thrust of the book that's worth it is this phrase that I love, I use a lot right on page 17 in his book. To be accepted, the, the truth must fit people's frames. If the facts do not fit a frame, the frame stays and the facts bounce off. Huh, wow. So, yeah, this is good. So it makes sense. It makes sense to me why you're seeing it to be meaningful. I'm, I'm curious, and, and maybe this gets into too much of the tactics. But um, so, so you read this, you understand people think in frames, and then what? Like what? Um, you said you started to use this to see how you learn things about the consequences. You discover the frame. So it sounds like. Has it been helpful for you in discovering frames for people? And oh my, yeah. This uh, first of all, most people don't. Um, most people are not aware of their uh, frames, self included. Um, and the great aid of a friend or a careful listener who pays attention to what you say um, can help you see the frame that you're unconsciously operating in. So, um, you know. So, for example. This takes what's called aggressive listening, which is not again the strength of most people in the Western world because we are we are in such a um, uh, instant, yeah, instant meal, instant this, instant that. Now we have what's called the shallowed out neural pathways. So the the ability to actually listen to someone, to pay attention, and listen for the key giveaway word for their frame. And it could be, uh, I've, I've listened to people before and they use uh, warrior language without knowing it. So they might say, uh, you know, well, whatever. So I'm listening for a word like, you know, we're battling over this or that. And then I'll say something like, uh, oh, oh, well, if this conversation has moved from the theater of love to a court of law. This, I, I'm not interested in that. And I go, what do you mean a court of law? And I said, you're listening to the, language, the words you've used. This is not a battle. This is a win-lose battle here. This is not good people both agreeing that perhaps we only see part of the truth and we want to come closer together. This is a, you're using win-lose uh, language. I'm reframing the debate. It takes careful listening. Now, so I'll tell you a couple of quick, quick stories that when I first read this book, when it first came out, I was also just beginning work in as consulting and helping companies frame their message. And the first company was a tracking company for the trucking industry, of which there were about a hundred back then. And they would compete against one another and they would have hardware and software hardware installed in in the vehicles or trucks and software 
they would monitor where the trucks are and so on and so forth. I know this sounds like Stone Age now, but this was cutting edge technology in 2004. And a company came to me and said, we know we have superior software and hardware. The stats back it up, but we can't bump past 3% of market share. We should have a lot more market share. Could you help us double market share? in the next year. I said, well, I don't know, but we'll spend the day together. So here's what happened. I had them, Pat, we had 16 gathered from up and down the East Coast. We gathered on the Eastern Shore of Maryland. They gave me each a big uh, drawing pad. And I said, I want you to go in the next room and draw a picture of success for your company and come back in. Give you five minutes. Now, the, why am I doing that, by the way? Um, I'm guessing, well, for several reasons, but one is it's helping to uh, flush out what their frame is. That's right. That's all I'm trying to do. And the quicker you do that and the more jarring you do it, the more you get them to draw an unedited picture. So mm -hmm. they don't go in the next room and go, hmm, I wonder what Mike's looking for. Uh, tip, if you ever do something like this, the more you explain it, the more people will be edited. So I didn't mm -hmm. explain what I was up to. I just said, go draw a picture of sex. You have five minutes, go. I might even wrap my knuckles on the table just because that all jars the neural pathways. And so they go in the next room. They came back. They, and I said, okay, tear off this big pad, put it on the walls. We had 16 on the walls, uh, 16 drawings. What do you think the first thing that struck all 16? They were all different. Yes. And I love the candor of the, you know, like the sales guy from Boston. Judy, what the hell did you draw there? <laughs> and uh, so you can see why print is deceptive because they might say highest quality customer care. And these are usually cobbled together by committee, these phrases, which means they're long, they're cumbersome, and they're not memorable. Well, what we did was we kept thinning out the pictures till they began to arrive at a picture, a frame, a frame that they shared. And it was in the midst of this I, I discovered that in this industry, their client is primarily a early 60-ish white, uh, beer drinking, sit behind a desk, pretty scrubby office, um, baseball watching, white guy, who his biggest fear is I don't know if I'm maximizing time on the road. If this trucker, I gave him six hours of work and he's in a park for two hours. And uh, so the more that we worked it through, I said, you know what? Your salespeople ought to go in with an American League or National League baseball, professional baseball, rubbed with mud from the Delaware River, which is what they are and put it on the desk and say, we'll show you the stitches. And that reframe doubled their business in the next year. Now, what does show you the stitches, if you know baseball, mean? So I, I admittedly, I think I only know this answer because you and I have talked about this before, sure. <laughs> but it's worth for our, we have three listeners, by the way. So for our three <laughs> listeners, hi, by the way. Um, yeah. When, when that ball is coming down <clears throat> and you're up to bat, um, you know, to be able to, to be able to 
to see that ball so well. You can even see the stitches. Is that correct? That's right. Granularity. It was Ted Williams who, when they asked, <clears throat> he was the last one to bat over 400. They said, how are you doing? He says, I see the stitches. Most batters see the ball. I see the stitches. Now, the power of a metaphor is you don't have to explain it. Now, I know for our three listeners, they're going, no, I, I don't. I, I never have thought of that. That's right, because you don't run a trucking company. You're not a white guy. You don't drink Pat's Blue Ribbon, and you're you're not. You know, you are more sophisticated. But for this audience, those owners of trucking companies chuckled because I said, "What do your salespeople say right now when they walk in?" We have the best hardware and software. Great. What did the next company that come in say? We have the best hardware. What did the next one say? We have the best hardware and software. What did the next one say? We have the best hardware and software. You're an owner. What are you going to do? You're finally going to go, <laughs> fine, just sign someone. Williams said, you'll actually raise your batting average X amount if you see the stitches. Hence, their sales pitch was, we'll show you the stitches. Then they said, Tim Williams said he saw the stitches. The average batter doesn't. The average tracking company can't show you the stitches. We will raise your top line by 20 points and drop your bottom line by 10, whatever their stats actually said. Yeah. See, the frames now were meaningful. Their sales doubled in the next year. It's from listening carefully so I love that many, many years ago, a friend of mine, um, who is now actually a donor to this ministry, my ministry, he came to me and he thought he was going to jar me. He said, um, I'll tell you what, I'm, uh, I really feel like I'm losing my faith. I'm slipping away from the faith. And I asked him to explain his faith to me, and he did. And I said, well, my friend, I have a, like to share with you. If I had that kind of faith, I'd lose it as fast as I can. Now, it's called a reframe, and he will tell you to this day, he never saw that coming. <laughs> I remember when we first moved here, too, I was talking with a young man because I was part of a group. There were nine different churches planted in 1987, being planted in Annapolis area. Eight went belly up over 10 years, but one of the, one of the uh, friends was sitting with, with me and said, you know, I want to have the fastest growing church in this region. I said, well, just remember, tumors are the fastest growing part of the human body. <laughs> so that's what we mean by listening carefully. I'm not opposed to a fat, rapidly growing church, but it's not exactly the bottom line. So that's all we mean by the power of uh, Lakoff's book. For me, did two things. Number one is I'm always... I am always trying anyway to listen carefully because the frame will emerge when you let someone talk. Here's another way to think of it, Pat. Most people listen, but they don't pay attention. Their point is of listening is to begin to form a response or an argument against your point while they're listening to you. You can see it by their quick in, inhale, 
you're kind of sharing something going, <gasps> like I'm getting ready to pounce. I, and I've got to speak right away because I, I, I'll forget what I want to say. And I'm going to counter your point. Well, that means they're not listening. They're not paying attention. And you've got to pay attention to what people say so that you can discern what the frame is. And if the frame, for example, is fear, like, if I listen to you, I'm going to feel you're right, I'm wrong, and I don't like that feeling. If you don't address that frame, the rest of the conversation will just become chaff in the wind. It will blow away. And Lakoff is very clear about this that the facts alone, the truth alone, will not set you free. You have to have a shared frame. Okay, so this makes sense. I'm, I'm hearing um, this, this book here, does that actually give you some insight into how to detect frames? Or, or did that itself kind of give you the frame to understand? Yeah, um, it, it doesn't it doesn't really go much into it, except to say, again, that 95% um, of our frames uh, we're unaware of. And if you don't pay attention to them or try to discern what they are, um, you will both be uh, ships passing in the night. You'll be talking past one another. Mm. And so... Um, yeah, that's, that's probably, there's a pre-existing frame. And if you have two people, you have two frames. And if you don't reframe, then you will be talking past one another. Yeah. We do this a lot in premarital counseling, by the way, because we might have, let's say, a 30-year-old couple uh, engaged to be married. And I say, hey, do the math. You're a whole 30 plus 30. How many years? not trying to fool them, but they go 60 years ago, you had 60 years of operating independently. And now you assume by wedded bliss, <laughs> you're going to share the same frame on where you eat, where you live, uh, sex, you name it. They go, oh, wow. And I said, and then let me just make it a little more complex. 95% of your frames are hidden from you. You would have to have the help of a friend because God delights in using secondary causes. I love that phrase. Because we tend to think, well, if I have the wrong frame, the Holy Spirit will enlighten me. That wasn't, that's not a very standard view in the church. Of course he could. But if he did, if God did that all the time, we wouldn't have any need of anyone else. Just get a Bible, get your heart right, get in a private place, Holy Spirit show me. That's it. That's what Luther came up with. That uh, all I need is uh, my individual conscience will determine uh, what frame I'm in. I'll become self-aware. Wrong, wrong, wrong. God delights in using secondary causes. They were called prophets in the Old Testament, but the point is they reframe. And, they, they, and it's what's supposed to cause us to want to come together 
as communities of faith rather than as individuals because we are strangers to ourselves. That's was Jeremiah's point in Jeremiah 17. So the frames govern the way we perceive the facts. You need, we, need, we benefit from friends, even the faithful wounds of a friend, to enlighten us in the best sense of that word, to, oh my goodness, I, that's true, that's what I've been imagining, and I was wrong. I like how Mark Twain says, the essence of education is what we unlearn. Some some of the, like what what are some other examples maybe of society level or more more public broader level things that have been reframed? Sure, Greg. Uh, the biggest one I think is uh, that really caught fire in the eighteen hundreds or came out of the Enlightenment is uh, autonomy, hmm. which means what? Um, the, the ability to do things separately, individually, by yourself. Yeah, not quite. Auto means self, yes. Nomos, autonomy, autonomos. Nomos in the Greek is, in the Greek, it's not Windex, it is uh, <laughs> the law. Autonomos huh. is a law unto yourself. Okay. So, okay. Is that, does that lean towards like self-governance type thing? Well, not self-governance. That's a biblical view because that requires the uh, faithful wounds of a friend, prophetic voice. Hmm. No, it has to do with a choice. And there's a great deal of literature and books we could pull on, but the idea that began with Luther but blossomed in the Enlightenment is Voltaire's Dare to Think for Yourself. Hmm. You choose. You choose how, where you worship, where you live. Uh, what you think the gospel says, uh, what you believe. And uh, we, the uh, Protestant, and especially the Protestant evangelical, a bit into this. The best book on this is Habits of the Heart by Robert Della. Individualism and Commitment in American Life. But once you have choice as the highest standard, you know, for example, before the Enlightenment, before even uh, Luther and the Reformation. Uh, the church you would have attended would have been in what was called your parish. You wouldn't drive halfway across the city to another one. First of all, there weren't cars. Yeah, that'd be uh, more like your, your locally designated Yeah, parish. that's right. And that's yeah. why when you can go to Louisiana, you don't have counties, you have parishes because that was the French Catholic influence that came to that part of the country. Um, Plekamen Parish and uh, Baton Rouge Parish. Um, now I grant you those don't mean anything anymore because of choice. Now what choice means on a very practical level is uh, the explosion of choices in grocery stores, in clothing, in, um, in my body. It's my body. So I can choose whether I will 
keep that baby or abort that baby. And choice was enshrined with the, by a, what the Supreme Court felt almost was a hidden assumption in the Constitution, the right to privacy. It first had to do with, I can choose to be against life, contraception, and I can have that in the privacy of my home, and that has nothing to do with my public life as a citizen. So my private life does not meaningfully connect to my public life as a citizen. Hence, we see today, whatever they do in their private life is fine, as long as they, that's called choice. And choice was elevated in uh, the Enlightenment. And so uh, it it was uh, considered to be the highest value is the right to choose. It goes right across the spectrum. And you can see why, um, when I was a pastor, the one thing that obliterated was uh, church discipline. Might be a couple who, I remember, you know, um, one was having an affair. And uh, to try to bring reconciliation, um, no. They instead just flicked the bird and went down the street to another church. And then other church never even called to say, so why'd they leave? Because for them, Two more people are growing. So what you have is a choice would be, uh, um, you know, one of the examples. You know, on the macro, when you say societal, Copernicus was a reframe of Ptolemy's view Hmm. that that the Earth is at the center of the universe and uh, set aside the flat Earth because there, there are, you can find ancients who believe that the world was a sphere. That, that's a, that's a, a straw man argument that people set up, especially against the church. Um, there were flat earth people, but that's not the case here. Um, so what you have with Copernicus, that's a reframe. So there's the, the, the way to think about it, there's always a frame when you meet someone. And um, they always have frames, plural, and you're going to hear whatever frame it is based on whatever you talk about. But for Copernicus, as he brought together more and more data, he began to go, you know, this frame doesn't work the more data you put in. Let me try a frame here where the sun is at the center of the universe. Everything fell together. Now, here's the power of frames when the Copernican revolution is reframes don't always work. Because the first two generations went, no way. And why? We've talked about this in other podcasts. Their whole educational model, or maybe their educate, or their model of faith, or maybe their model of the, maybe their, the school they taught in, everything. If you if you take that frame and replace it with Copernicus, then all your books are wrong. All your books books are inadequate. They're, they're inaccurate. They, they have the right words. They're in the wrong order. Sun, moon, stars, earth, blah, 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 blah. The words are right. The order is wrong. Mm-hmm. And so a reframe doesn't necessarily carry the day, but it does over time 
because reality has a way of catching up to us. But you just have to stay in it for the long run. So Copernicus is an example. So simpler ones are like that business, but again, part of what the advantage of business, they have a profit motive. And a profit is not a dirty word. Um, and so when you have a profit motive, you're trying to gain market share. If you find a better frame, uh, that company then has a retraining of their, all their sales force, rescripting of what they said, and they double their market share. In uh, yeah, so sales. I see that side. Uh, obvious impact to sales and even the, the psychology of the customer. What about internal to an organization and reframing internally? Do you see cases where that is helpful or or has a has a result? Well, this this again is uh, um, Dennis Bakke's. I think the driving impetus behind his book Joy at Work mm-hmm. is. Uh, the idea of scientific management and management of people is relatively new frame in history from the 1800s. And uh, remember, he said we started our energy company in in the late 70s, AES. He said primarily to reframe 19th century notions about human nature. And they said, we are going to operate now. Bucky is a Christian. And so he was, he was uh, translating scripture and he said, we think that human beings are fundamentally intelligent, creative, and resourceful. I think those are three words. So he said, if they're intelligent, then with just a essential kind of introduction to how this whole industry works and they're creative, that is, they might go, well, here's a better way to do it. And resourceful that uh, if that's where some HR departments have actually adopted this model. And so rather than human res- uh, HR human resources, they say, we want to create resourceful humans. And the AES just boomed, but they had no management structure. They didn't have, as you like to joke, they didn't have this manual that said, uh, here's the days off you get, unless, unless it's Thursday and your mother lives in Luxembourg and you have to fly over and then you take two more days and you get to fill out this form and you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it was in its heyday a remarkable company, but they didn't have uh, layers of management. They have this young man, for example, that's running a billion-dollar plant in Pittsburgh. And uh, if you read the story, I believe it was in Business Week many, many, many years ago, Business by the Book, um, you read the sidebar testimonies of people, and you'll notice that without saying it explicitly but implicitly, several of them in the orientation of this company came to faith in Christ because they <clears throat> just found this is a this is a, a lot more meaningful as human being. I feel more like a human being when I work under this. And, and you know, this comes amidst all the studies of this ongoing debate about offices and people working there versus the home. And I know we're not going to solve that debate today, but what COVID did is a reframe for a lot of people. You know what? I'm just as productive. I connect with the people that I have to. I'm not in all these aimless meetings. I get to go watch my kids game at three o'clock. I exercise more. I'm not running up 40,000, 50,000 miles a year in my car. 
I don't know why, but I kind of like this. <laughs> then you have old school. I think they're old school, frankly. Um, CEOs might have you say, no, we got to get back in the office. There's camaraderie. There's, there is uh, spontaneity. And there is some argument for that, but I think they overplay their hand. Because there is also a great deal of data that people are actually more productive. And we can debate forever all the data, but is this an example of frame? Because if your frame is that people are intelligent, creative, and responsive, resourceful, and responsible, maybe that might have been the other words, responsible, but the fact is, they can work from their home. They will be responsible, creative, and intelligent. And for what we deliver to our customer, it will actually be better. Will we enjoy getting together from time to time? Other than, you know, at, with, through Google Meet or what have you? Of course. Uh, five days a week? Probably not. One day a week? Probably. I have a friend of mine, a young couple, and she uh, works for NSA. Uh, she's in one day a week. And she's happier, more productive. So you can see why the frame, the frame I think uh, is weak, weaker for uh, why we have offices. And then again, it goes back to, we didn't have, we didn't really have offices until post civil war with the rise of the industrial revolution, uh, the industrial uh, and the transportation revolution and the technological all came together and so many people could get places quicker. And then you begin to have these quote office towers begin to be built. And then you start to have kind of a homogenization of work and get them in assembly lines and get them in office buildings. And, um, you know, we all, we've told the story before when the uh, father of this revolution, scientific management, Winslow uh, Taylor, Frederick Winslow Taylor, introduced it to U.S. Steel, uh, 961 people in the first year walked off the job. They said, I'm not doing this but they became enculturated to it. Each successive generation was worn down. And when they lost sight of what work used to be, and they went to work in the steel plants, like, like Taylor said they would, because he said they're animals, treat them like animals. And that's what happened with Copernican in a positive way, is that the Ptolemist, it just wore them down after a while. But it took two, three generations, and it only took two generations in U.S. Steel, who they fired Taylor, by the way. Uh, so he ran off to the new, uh, introduced his stuff to Harvard Business School, and that's where it got traction. Typical in a academic setting, not, not an actual business. <laughs> so that's, a, that's the power of a frame that for... Christians, and maybe we'll take this up in the next podcast, there are three basic frames in Western Christianity or in America for how Christians understand church history. 
and they have profound uh, significance for what we make of the church and Christianity. And uh, they don't particularly overlap. They are three distinct frames that make the make Christians in two of the three frames look at the other frames and go, no way, no way. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating study on the power of frames. And what do you think, Pat? Maybe we'll make that our next podcast. Yeah, sounds good. Stay okay. tuned. Yeah, stay tuned, folks. By the way, here's another power of reframe. Uh, collect, uh, uh, st- uh, collect the opening lines for books. And that's a good way to think of reframes. So I always think of uh, Lewis starts one of his books. There was once a boy named Eustace Scrubs. And he darn near deserved the name. Or, as you too wanted to introduce vertigo and how confused and disordered, rather, we have become as a society. The the song starts out, one, two, three, quatorres, fourteen. That's a reframe. That's a jangling opening about we are in a disordered vertigo world that's forgotten augustine's order of the law of loves and you don't even feel it 